Martin Lloyd-Jones famously used to open his sermons by saying, I should like to call your attention to, and then stating the Bible passage. So I should like to call your attention to Isaiah chapter 40. And what we're going to see this morning is Isaiah wants to call our attention to Almighty God in a very unique way. It's been said that your view of God is the most important thing about you. That's been attributed to Tozer. I'm sure others have said it as well. Another way to say that is to say, your theology matters. Some hear the word theology and think of nerds and textbooks. Some believe theology is vain, empty speculation for the curious or the intellectual. Some believe that theology is ultimately counterproductive and unnecessary for our day in, day out lives as Christians. Some consider it to be an extra. Theology is fine, but ultimately it's separate from the much more important category, so it goes, the much more important realms of devotion or piety. That is that somehow what we think about God is a separate matter from what we actually think we should be doing for God. That there's a disconnect, a wedge. But contrary to such notions, Scripture does not drive a wedge between theology and devotional, vibrant faith. It connects them. We're called to understand and know the Lord, Jeremiah 9.24. Jesus defines eternal life as knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent in John 17, 3. So clearly then, our view of God is essential to our lives as Christians. When I say view of God, I want to clarify that I'm not talking about cold, detached facts about God, even true things, things that we would take from Scripture. True theology is much, much more than knowledge and facts. In his book, Taste and See That the Lord is Good, Pastor Joel James says, no matter how diligent your accumulation, no matter how brilliantly you categorize, alphabetize, and analyze the facts you've discovered about God, you haven't really done theology if that's all you do. Why not? Because theology requires daily application. Theology produces love for God. Theology must always ascend from the arid desert of merely accumulating and analyzing facts about God to the lush mountain valleys of application, worship, and love for God. And that's so helpful. Our view of God should be the driving force behind our devotion to God. At the most intimate level of your heart, your ability to rightly relate to, your ability to respond to, your ability to pursue the Lord depends on your view of him. All of the promises and instruction of God's word are significant, not in and of themselves, but because of the God that they come from. In other words, knowing what God is like is essential to believing and doing what he desires. This, this move, the move from theology to faith is crucial. And I, I think just a couple examples may help us see this. We've spent the last several weeks studying God's design for men and women specifically in the context of marriage, and undergirding all of the commands we're given that govern our roles and responsibilities as men and women is the fact that the one commanding such things is he who created us, male and female, in his image. The one commanding these things, we are to seek to know he's the one who actually knows what's best because he made us and told us how he wants us to live. He knows how men and women will best glorify him. So behind the command stands the God of the commands, And we need to know him to rightly understand and pursue what he's called us to. Or what about trust in God in the midst of uncertainties in life? We know that the scriptures call us to count it all joy when we encounter various trials. And we know that's not an empty, cruel command because we know that the God behind the command is good and does good. Knowing the God who's told us to count it all joy changes everything about how we understand that. And this connection between who God is, what he has said, and how we respond is the focus of Isaiah chapter 40. 
Isaiah's ministry was focused on the southern kingdom of Judah when the people of Israel were in the, what's known as the divided kingdom. The northern kingdom being Israel and the southern kingdom being Judah. Isaiah was focused on Judah and he ministered during a time of uncertainty and upheaval. The Assyrian Empire was a force. They had taken the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity and it started to turn their attention on Judah. There were temptations for Judah's kings to form alliances with surrounding nations to seek some way of of finding support or relief against what they saw coming, and Isaiah warned them against that. While Hezekiah was king, the cities around Jerusalem were taken, and then Jerusalem itself comes under siege, certain to fall before miraculous deliverance from the Lord. And the angel comes and wipes out many, many Assyrians. But after that deliverance... Isaiah 39, Isaiah warns Judah that eventually they're going to be taken into captivity by the Babylonian Empire. So chapter 40 comes on the heels of that prophecy. And it really begins the second portion, the second main portion of the book. And this second portion, 40 through 66, is focused on comfort for God's people and assurance of future restoration. The first 39 chapters are mainly... God letting them know that they need to repent and the consequences for not repenting. But in 40 through 66, the main thrust becomes comfort and assurance. Interestingly, the main setting for this portion of the book is not the time in which Isaiah wrote to those who had just seen the northern kingdom be taken into captivity and them narrowly escaped by God's mighty hand, but instead into the future writing to those who would be in the Babylonian exile some 150 years after Isaiah's ministry. So the context of the words that we're going to read in Isaiah 40 are written to those who would be experiencing this exile. So God addresses his words through the prophet to this future group of oppressed, disheartened exiles. The circumstances of these exiles, at least for us to to imagine are important for seeing the thrust of why Isaiah does what he does in in chapter 40 and in the words we're going to read and and look at this morning. Exiles would find themselves under the rule and authority of of a foreign entity, of a pagan nation, surrounded by idols and and many so-called gods. They were not rescued like they had been before. They had seen Assyria lay siege and yet God delivered them, but now not. Had Israel's God, had Israel's Lord been defeated Jerusalem, that ever important city, God's city was decimated and the temple, the ultimate place and indication of God's presence with his people was in ruins. Had the Lord completely abandoned his people? Should they place their trust elsewhere? Should they look to a nation? Should they look to an idol? Should they look to a combination of all of the above? It's not hard to imagine how dismayed and discouraged they would have been. A look around would have made it obvious to them the the Babylonians are winning. This isn't going well. Any faith that they would have had would have been severely tested as it looked like the nations around them had posed a serious threat, even conquering God's people and posed a challenge to God's ultimate authority and power. So Isaiah takes up that challenge and he writes to address this people who are burdened by their grief But his response is not to give them a bunch of practical advice for bearing up under difficulty. He gives them theology. He acknowledges their difficulty. He knows that they're in exile. He knows that they're disheartened, that they're wondering where the Lord is. And he gives them theology. He directs their attention upward to remind them of who the Lord God is, not for curiosity, not theology for theology's sake, but to engender trust in the God who said he would restore his people. The chapter 40 opens with this comforting promise of future restoration. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. He moves on through this, these first 11 verses indicating God's glory would be displayed before all the nations, before all peoples, before all flesh, and that that restoration is certain because God's word is sure. God's word stands forever. He says, behold, the Lord God will come with might, 
with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. These are words of comfort, of promise of restoration, of care, of God's future rescue. Yet, if you're in exile hearing those words and you look around, there's going to be a perceived gap between what that says and what you're experiencing, between God's promise and then the circumstances. So Isaiah turns from God's willingness to restore and he focuses now on his ability to execute and accomplish what he said he will do. Verses 12 through 31 are intended to show that the Lord is supremely worthy of his people's trust. Follow along as I read Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 31. And as we do that, just really feel the, the unrelenting torrent of these statements about God. It, I, I believe it's part of the prophet's intention that where we're, we're going to want to stop and pause and be like, wait, 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 I didn't even catch that. And another one comes. And the point is to overwhelm, really overwhelm our understanding, overwhelm our thoughts with the greatness of God. Starting in verse 12, Isaiah writes, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it. A goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. These verses thunder with the truth that no one, no one is like the Lord. He is unmatched in his greatness, unsurpassed in his majesty, and any other superlatives of uniqueness and distinction that you or I could come up with. This truth is not presented in Isaiah as a detached, systematic study of God's attributes, but it's a clarion call to God's people to trust him. That's what he's after. He's after trust in those who were doubting the Lord. And so he says, look up. You're tempted to look for other options for security and hope. 
but you need to consider the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. Now, if you're a Christian, you come at this from a bit of a different perspective. We're, we know God's redeeming love. We're not waiting for restoration in the same sense that the exiles were. We know the Lord's work of regeneration in our hearts. You've been spiritually rescued. Your trust that you're forgiven is based on the death and resurrection of Christ. Yet, you, as a believer, me, you still don't know your full salvation. Your faith is not yet sight. And so we also need to consider God himself and who he revealed himself to be to bolster our faith. When faith is weak, when belief is frail, when trust is thin, we need to consider the Lord himself. We need to be reminded of God's greatness, of his majesty. Many of us would seek hope in the certain promises of God, and that's where we should go. But we can't do that if we don't know the God of the promises. We have to know who stands behind what he said he will do for us. Can we really trust the promises of God if we're unsure of his ability to actually accomplish what the promise says? The answer is, of course, no. If we don't know of his greatness, we'll be tempted to, to not trust, to doubt. John Calvin says this, if this conviction of the power of God were deeply seated in our hearts, we would not be so much alarmed and would not be easily disturbed by any calamity. When our hearts are tempted to stray from the Lord, tempted to place our hope or trust in human means for comfort, for deliverance, a consideration of who God is can draw our hearts to trust that he is able to do all that he has said he will do. We're gonna organize our, our look at this fairly lengthy passage around eight considerations that confirm God is supremely worthy of our trust. Eight considerations that, that confirm God is supremely worthy of our trust. I'm sure some of you have encountered these verses in studies on God's attributes. You've been able to camp out on portions of this passage, and we're going to move much quicker than that to take in the extents of the passage, and that means certain thoughts and concepts are going to be left for deeper study. But I actually believe that setting forth such a breadth of big thoughts of God in, at such a relentless pace is, is part of Isaiah's point. It's part of the message. To be overwhelmed by the unmatchless greatness of God all at once. As soon as he gets done asking one question, he turns his attention to another comparison. We've not even wrapped our minds around the one that he started with and he's already onto something else. The intent is that we're supposed to say, wow, what a God. The conclusion that he's driving us toward is that God, the one who is beyond compare, is supremely worthy of our trust. Where else are you going to go? There's none but God. Who else would you trust in times of difficulty? There's none but God. When your faith is frail, consider the God who made the heavens and the earth, who redeemed you, whose grace has been poured out on you. He is supremely worthy of our trust. And the first consideration comes in verse 12, and that is consider that the creator transcends his creation. The creator transcends his creation. A series of rhetorical questions come all to show that God, the creator, is actually even above and beyond his creation. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? The questions are intended to bring to mind the immensity of God, the bigness of God. We're awed, and rightly so, by creation Right, The heavens declare the glory of God. God is bigger than the vastness of his creation. So much so that it, it in some ways pales in comparison to his greatness. It says, he holds the waters in the hollow of his hand. And we have to use our imagination throughout this text. Have you cupped water before it, at the edge of a lake or the ocean and seen how utterly insignificant that little amount of water is in your hand? All the waters of the earth are like that in God's hand. That's the idea. He quantifies the vastness of the universe. He measures it out and stands beyond it. I remember the first time that I ever was, was just sort of captivated by the vastness of creation. It was the first time I ever saw the Rocky Mountains. I just could not get over how big everything was. 
And this says that God measures the mountains on a scale. Our concept of that vastness pales. We're not even really able to rightly ascribe the vastness that is due God. He measures the mountains, he weighs them, no big deal. He numbers every dust particle on the earth. He calculated it out, he measured it out, he placed them there, he knows how many is there. I read, and I have no idea if this is accurate, but it sounded interesting that a billion grains of sand are in one cubic foot of sand. I mean, the source wasn't like random, it was somewhat scientific. But still, a, a billion, <laughs> a billion grains of sand, and surprisingly, there's very little way to verify that, but a billion grains of sand in a cubic foot. God numbered the dust particles on every beach, on every piece of dirt. It's incredible. He measured out everything in creation. The answer to the rhetorical questions is where to say only God. None but God could do this. Only he is the creator and only he stands beyond his creation. Now Isaiah turns then from creation to God's wisdom. From his vastness and his greatness now to his wisdom. And he invites us to consider the source of God's knowledge and understanding. That's our second consideration. Consider the source of God's knowledge and understanding. Verse 13, who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? The question is, where did God get his wisdom? Who did God counsel with? Who did God have meetings with to plan creation to get good ideas that he could implement? Who suggested to God how he may spread the expanse of his world? Who has pointed out to God the right way to order things? The orders of the universe, the things that he set in motion? Of course, the answer is himself. God got all of his knowledge and wisdom from himself. It's who he is. He didn't learn anything. God doesn't learn. God doesn't seek knowledge. God doesn't need input from anyone. It was all in and of himself. Everything that he did was an overflow of who he is, all of his creation. He's self-sufficient in wisdom and knowledge. The notion here of directing the ways and giving understanding is, may bring to mind just how he planned and ordered our universe. And you think of the laws of our universe, physics and mathematics, and that all of it was God's idea and God's alone. And then you think, wow, and then I think at the effort that's expended by human beings just to figure out one theory or one law that we think helps us make sense of the universe. It makes the, the watershed scientific discovery seem so elementary. God doesn't actually have to work to discover any of them. They all came from him. He didn't need anyone's counsel, any direction. Nobody can fully discern the depths of who he is, his knowledge, his wisdom, and understanding. And again, these questions assume an answer. The, the answer is supposed to be, come to mind in the hearers' hearts. When, when the ears of the exiles heard this, they were saying, no one. Who counseled the Lord? No one. With whom did he need to counsel? No one. Nobody. All of his knowledge and understanding is from him. He didn't need anything. He lacks nothing. And again, he turns his focus now, verse 15, and he turns his focus to the nations. To the nations. Verses 15 through 17. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Our third consideration is to consider the relative insignificance of the nations. Their relative insignificance. We rightly ascribe significance to nations from our vantage point. 
The world as we know it consists of nations, it consists of people, it consists of governments. Nations demonstrate power. They demonstrate prestige. They exercise dominion over peoples and places and, and, and lands. But the idea here is in light of all of that significance and in light of the significance that we rightly ascribe to them, relative to God, there is nothing. Relative to his greatness, the most astounding demonstration of a nation's glory, a nation's power, a nation's ability to do something, it's as nothing. It's as, it's as meaningless relative to the Lord. He describes this in an illustration we can, we can easily understand as a single drop of water from a full bucket. Now, none of you, if you were carrying a bucket full of water, I, I wouldn't imagine, and one single droplet, if you could even see it, flies out of the bucket, you go back and refill the bucket. It's insignificant, right? It's as nothing. God says, that's a picture of the nations before me. If you're weighing something out in a weightless speck of dust that may not even be visible to the human eyes on the scale, it's insignificant. God says the nations relative to his greatness are nothing. I've read biographies of presidents and world leaders. I'm always stunned by the magnitude of their responsibility, by their importance, by all that they can accomplish, by their decision-making. And this verse says, yes, but before God, the magnitude of all that, it is as meaningless it's meaningless before him. Now, Lebanon was known in the ancient world for its rich cedar forests full of animals. He says, even Lebanon, verse 16, is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. The picture here is that if the whole of Lebanon and all of its lush cedar forests were chopped down and all of the animals offered up in a massive, large, beyond our imagination sacrifice, <laughs> that compared to the worth of what God's greatness demands, it's nothing. It's not suitable. It's not suitable for his greatness. Now it's important to see that the portrayal of the nations as nothing doesn't mean God doesn't care. The comparison is not they're meaningless in the sense that God doesn't care about humanity, right? or that God doesn't care about governments and he doesn't care about the authorities that he's established. Romans 13 would tell us otherwise. God has appointed leaders. God has put them in place. He cares. The issue here is compared to him. It's, it's magnitude, it's greatness. It's nations are great, but compared to the greatness of God, they're nothing, they're meaningless. Verse 6, 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. It's just an, a, a, a very plain assertion. All the nations are as nothing before him. They're regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Now the notion of powerful nations would have meant something to exiles who had just been carried from their land by what? A powerful nation. That would have been very heavy in their mind. Clearly nations mattered. One conquered another and now they were exiles. But God reassures them. If God says he's gonna restore, it doesn't matter how powerful the nation seems to be. Before him, there is nothing. Great nations come to less than nothing. Now verse 18 is the first of two refrains. These are my favorite verses in, the te in, in this text. This one in verse 25. He asks after the first considerations, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? He's saying consider creation, consider God's wisdom, consider the nations and all of their greatness. And he identifies in each that he is beyond all of them and there's no comparing. He says, who, who will you compare me to? To whom will you liken me? God is unlike anything. That's the point. God is unlike anything. And because he's unlike anything, because he's so great beyond anything, he's supremely worthy of our trust. Every comparison in this text is intended to point to the reality that there is nothing to which we can compare God, ultimately. He's not one of many gods. He's God alone. He's not a better version of mankind. He is completely other. He's completely and wholly distinct. There's an essential difference between the creator and the creature. This refrain, and we actually heard something similar in Psalm 18 this morning. This refrain, who, to whom will you liken God? That, that's, at the, 
the core of our view of God. It needs to be there, that God is beyond compare. Fundamental to our view of God is this truth. There is no one like him. Therefore, he is supremely worthy of our trust. Now, picking up on this notion of likeness that's introduced in verse 18, he turns to idols. He brings up idols. Some would say it kind of can read like this. Or what likeness will you compare me? Idols? A craftsman casts it, verse 19. A goldsmith plates it with gold. And a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. In this fourth consideration, he asks us to consider the laughable inadequacy of man-made idols. To whom will you compare the Lord? Something that you have a craftsman make? There's sarcasm in Isaiah's words. He identifies that this, this so-called God has to be made. And so he even presumes, well, oh, well, well, maybe it's a fancy one. A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith plates it with gold and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. And he says, well, what about those who can't afford that? Well, you can't afford that type of, of idol, so you're gonna, but you're gonna select a really good tree, one that doesn't rot, one that's made by a skillful craftsman. And then there's, there's some derision in the last line, to prepare an idol that will not totter. You've gotta do it just right because the idol that you want, you don't want it to fall down. That would be embarrassing. And so there's this laughable sense of the inadequacy of some man-made thing in light of who God is. To what likeness will you compare God? Certainly not a man-made idol. It doesn't matter whether it's gold or silver or lesser. It doesn't matter even if it doesn't rot. That's the point. It doesn't matter if it's made by skilled craftsmen so that it doesn't fall down like the Philistine god Dagon did when the Ark of the Covenant was in there and it kept falling down. Idols are an inadequate comparison to Almighty God. And to a people who were in a, in a land with idols surrounding them and gods and maybe tempted to turn to their gods in light of their gods' perceived distance or silence, that's a temptation. And we need to be careful here because I have never once tried to craft a statue that I would worship. And so I laugh. I mean, it's funny and it's interesting to think of this, these, this very basic people many, many years ago who are bowing before little statues. And certainly that's not an issue for me, but it is funny. And, and that's, that's wrong because the, the sin of idolatry is in our hearts. And just because it doesn't manifest itself in us going out and asking craftsmen to make little gold statues doesn't mean that we still don't seek to compare God with something else. Seeking trust, to place our trust in, our comfort, our hope, finding hope in something, anything, anyone other than the Lord himself. When we place something in the place of God, we're no better than those who made a literal deaf and dumb statue and worshiped it. It's the same root sin. So it's just as laughable when we exalt idols in our lives over and against God rather than remembering God's greatness and recognizing he is who we need to trust. After exposing the folly of idol making, the passage moves back to the subject of nations. So he's gonna turn back to the subject of nations and this time the emphasis is not just on their relative insignificance, but it's actually on the frailty of the rulers that are involved in nations. The frailty of the rulers, verse 21. Do you not know, have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It's he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. So he's gonna point to that fact first that do you forget in this idol-making pursuit, you forget that God Almighty has ultimate authority over everything on the earth and all of its inhabitants? And so this fifth consideration looks at God's position as creator enthroned over the earth and then asks us to consider God's supreme authority over frail realms and rulers. Far from being able to be thwarted by a rebellious nation, far from being able to be thwarted by rulers and the people that inhabit their realms, God sits enthroned above the world. And before him who sits in the heavens, above the heavens, heavens, all of the inhabitants are as grasshoppers, puny, 
insignificant. Verses 23 and 24 then flow out of that and say, he it is who reduces rulers to nothing. The one who sits above and looks down, he it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. It says, consider God's supreme authority. The idea here is that God has the ultimate prerogative to establish and to tear down, to eliminate rulers and realms. That's his prerogative. It's what he does. He has the authority to do that. No one else. God's plans can't be thwarted. He's trustworthy. Who are you gonna turn to? The nations that God himself exercises control over supremely? The God whose authority extends to everything that they would do? Who, as the illustration points out, like a little seedling, Right when it pops up, he blows and it's gone. You think of how many nations, realms, rulers have been established in world history. Many. And significant ones at that. Noteworthy. And they rise up and they fall down as if they're nothing before the Lord. And he sits above all of that with supreme authority. Not a single person, not a single nation, not a single ruler can be in a position to thwart God's purposes or resist his plans. He does what he wishes. And that should bring the question, then who should we trust? Then he says in verse 25, to whom then will you liken me? That I would be his equal, says the Holy One. This second refrain, again, highlighting God's singularity. It's different from verse 18. Here, God is the one asking the question. God himself invites the comparison. The Holy One. Not merely morally pure. This is set apart, separate. This is otherness. The Holy One, he's distinct. He has utter distinction. He says, to whom will you compare the one who has no comparison? To whom will you compare the one who's separate from everything that you could even conceive to compare him to? Again, every comparison made, verse 25, is intended to point out God's surpassing greatness. Right? Over and over and over again. Idols are laughable creations. Rulers and realms are as tiny as grasshoppers and frail as seedlings that blow away. Can any person, any entity, any so-called God legitimately compete with God for our trust? And the answer is no. And when that happens, it's lunacy, Right? When that happens, we are taking all of this truth and actively denying it and then chasing after whatever feeble thing that we're choosing to place our trust or hope in. So we move on from that, then Isaiah once again calls all who hear him to lift up our eyes and consider creation once more. He brings creation in again. Lift up your eyes, verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Here Isaiah invites us to consider the power by which God sustains his creation. That's the sixth consideration. Consider the power by which God sustains his creation. He says, look up. Look at the stars. Consider who made them. Consider who knew their proper portions, exactly where they needed to be placed, who actually leads them out, sets them in their place, and and ensures that they're doing their job. Consider him. Consider that he's the one who knows and has charge over each star. On a recent trip, uh, I had the opportunity to drive between a cornfield where there were no lights, two cornfields on each side, a gravel road. I had my family. We had the kids stay up late, 10.30. Ooh. And... We turned off all the lights and, and we got to look at the stars and it was incredible. And you cannot take it all in. It, it is the definition of breathtaking. You look up and you realize the vastness of that is beyond anything you could articulate. It doesn't matter. The telescopes, Hubble telescope, whatever. The universes, the galaxies, et cetera, and it just keeps going and going and going and going and the numbers are too big for us to fathom. Isaiah says, look up. Consider that. Really? Are you going to trust someone else? Are you going to look toward another entity? Consider who placed the stars. 
in their place and the power by which God himself sustains his creation. Everything in the expanse of the heavens depends on God and he is dependable. That's part of this illustration. Not merely that he placed them there, but that he keeps them there. Scripture portrays God as one who, who is preserving sovereignly his creation. He didn't wind up the clock and let go. He didn't spin the top and, and hands off and seeing how long it's gonna spin before it falls. He's actively involved preserving his creation. He has the power to do that. And Isaiah highlights this truth that we have the ability to see every single night. Every single night we can see this illustration. And every single night, well, on our better nights when we're thinking about Isaiah 40, that should challenge our trust, our lack of trust in Almighty God. Would we really question his trustworthiness, his ability? The stars in the heaven, heavens receive his sustaining care, his provision, his, his preservation. And how much more do we who are made in his image and as believers who have tasted the grace that he's poured out through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's redeemed us by the death and resurrection of his son. He preserves the stars. How much more will he preserve those whom he sent his own son to die for? God is supremely worthy of our trust. And from this breathtaking tour of greatness with all these comparisons that all confirm that God is supremely worthy of our trust, Isaiah now makes more comparisons of greatness, but his focus starts to shift. Now he's going to bring in a particular emphasis on God's ability and his willingness to help his people. This is where all of the theology starts to connect with faith even more explicitly in our passage. The transcendent, the faraway God is near to his people. He's willing to help him, them. And not only is he willing, as we saw in the first 11 verses, he's able, as we have seen. Those in exile need not fear that God would not be able to restore them. They need to consider all the evidence that Isaiah has presented that there's none like God. And then they need to consider that God is more than able to help his people. It's the seventh consideration. God is more than able to help his people. As we said at the beginning of our time, the exiles would be dealing with despair. And here Isaiah in verse 27 portrays their complaints. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, the justice do me escapes the notice of my God. That's a complaint of despair. That's a complaint of, of hopelessness. Why is God not acting on our behalf? Does he not know what's going on? Does he not see our, our plight? Does he not care about the struggle? And Isaiah points out that in light of the preceding comparisons, that complaint, it, it's baseless. It may be a genuine expression of how one feels, but at the end of the day, there's no foundation for that in light of who God has shown himself to be. That's the point. You may feel this way, you may be despairing, but the foundation for your despair is, is not solid. You know the Lord, the Lord himself who's able to help that's the point. Isaiah then says in verse 28, do you not know, have you not heard? Remember, he's addressing this. I don't think this is harsh. I don't think this is responding to those who are despairing, saying, ha, huh, have you not heard? Have you not figured this out yet? But he's reminding them of the theology that ultimately moves them toward trust. He says, have you not, do you not know, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord the creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. The Lord is the eternal one with unlimited strength, unlimited wisdom, and that's Isaiah's answer to the despair. I, I, I wonder as I'm studying this and I've experienced times of difficulty in my own life, how, we are so quick to seek answers that aren't like this. Maybe even answers from scripture, which are good, but we forget that God has said, I'm the everlasting God, why? Have you, do you not know? Do you think that you're really hidden from me? Do you think that I've really forgotten about you? Do you really believe that 
I'm not strong enough to bring you through whatever trial you're currently in? Do you think that my wisdom is not deep enough or broad enough to understand the difficulty that you're going through? And the answer is, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. He's able, always able, ever able. And also, his understanding is inscrutable. It's not just that he's able with power. It's that what he will bring about is perfect in its timing and in its wisdom because he alone bears perfect understanding of your situation. He alone bears perfect understanding of the circumstances of those who would, who would air that complaint. God's ways are perfect, but they are also beyond our understanding. And it's a good reminder for us that we don't have to understand God's purposes to actually know and trust that he is good and does good. We need to focus on the Lord, the everlasting God. He mercifully and graciously assures that he will help the faithful. He gives strength to the weary, verse 29. To him who lacks might, he increases power. He will help. And the final consideration that Isaiah gives us is that consider that God graciously strengthens his people. So he's able, but, and, and he will. He graciously strengthens his people. Verse 29, he gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, he increases power. And now another comparison. Even those on the earth that seem to be tireless will eventually grow tired. They have physical limitations. That's the point. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, it's a good reminder that even the most robust among us will falter, right? You're not God. He says, God who never grows weary or tired graciously strengthens his people. He graciously strengthens, verse 31, those who wait for the Lord. Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Waiting here doesn't mean pass the time. It means hope. It means faithful dependence. It means leaning on the Lord, expecting that he can do what he said he will do. It's not twiddling your thumbs. He's not saying, hold your breath, just wait just long enough. He's saying depend, hope, trust. Those who trust the Lord those who are dependent on him, God is able and willing to graciously strengthen and it comes in accordance with his goodness and his wisdom. Those who have the right view of God, those whose theology has moved them toward trust are those who will wait on the Lord. That's the idea. Those who are dependent, those who seek him, not perfectly, those with struggles, but they bring their struggles to the Lord in dependence. They're obviously struggling, they're tired, they need strength, they're weary. But waiting, hoping, that's the issue. And in light of the context of these verses, this, this verse 31, which is on paintings and greeting cards and a lot of really nice Christian things, says, they will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get, get tired. They will walk and not become weary. This picture of new strength. And in the context, that's strength for people that are, that are devastated. People that are weary and hurting but looking to God. People that Isaiah would say, look up, consider. Consider God, consider all that he's made. Consider all that he does for the nations. Consider his power, consider his authority. Consider his greatness, his majesty, his uniqueness. Consider his separateness from everything. All of those things he brings to bear and says, hope in him and he will give you new strength. Now that's not saying if you hope, he'll necessarily reward you. He's saying that's the response of faith. Trust, dependence, hope. Because the Lord will graciously give his people what they need. The last picture in comparison is one of strength and vigor in the Lord, and they're, they're inexhaustible. They're inexhaustible. It, I just love, he, he says, youths grow weary and tired. We know what it is. You have kids running around and say, don't you ever get tired? We also know what it is to see the more robust, the mighty men among us who seem to be able to 
last twice as long in their, their workload and all that they have to accomplish and they're able to burn the candle at both ends and, and all of those things. And the Lord says, even they, even they will get tired. But God doesn't. His resources are, are inexhaustible. His strength that he gives and provides out of is inexhaustible. It will run out. He's able and he graciously provides. Now that was a fast tour of these considerations and scripture is full, full of teaching about God. It is full of teaching that bolsters our view of the Lord. And there are good resources that help with this. The last two years, two books that have been in, in our recommended list, Knowing God by J.I. Packer this year, A.W. Tozer, Knowledge of the Holy. Those are books that seek to bolster your view of God, not as an end in and of itself, not simply so that you can say, I know the, the systematic categories of God's attributes, but so that you can bolster your faith, so that you can study and see and consider what scripture says about Almighty God and recognize that he is supremely worthy of trust. He is worthy of your devotion. I'm not sure that we can grow in our hope for salvation during difficulties if we're not growing in our knowledge of the God of our salvation. I'm not sure that our hope will grow, that our faith for future salvation, for rescue, will increase if we're not actually increasing our knowledge of the God who said he will do those things. Our view of God is connected to our faith. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Timothy. In light of our context, Paul says, I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Do you hear the progression? He knows who, he's, who he believes, who he trusts. And that knowledge of who he trusts leads him to be convinced. He has deep-seated conviction that God is able to guard what's entrusted to him. Isaiah applies theology that God is the eternal almighty creator of the world to the lives of those who are lacking trust to those in despair and likewise we must consider that God himself the almighty God to have the conviction of his greatness as Calvin said deeply implanted in our hearts deep seated in our hearts so that we believe that God is supremely worthy of our trust let's pray